This morning we read from Zechariah chapter 3, Zechariah the third chapter. Zechariah is one of the books in the toward the end of the Old Testament. This is the inspired word of our God, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch, for behold, On the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And will you join me, please, in a prayer asking for illumination on the Word of God? O Holy Spirit of God, you inspired this Word to be written for our instruction, for our edification, for our sanctification, for those who do not know you yet by saving faith, for our justification. So as we turn to your Word, illuminate our hearts and our minds Give your servant your words to speak. For we pray in the precious name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, those of you who are familiar with the prophecy of Zechariah probably remember that he had eight different visions from the Lord. And back in his day, that is how the Lord revealed himself to his people. He often used visions, just as today he reveals himself in his word. The vision that we read about in chapter 3 is the fourth vision that Zechariah received from the Lord, and it presents for us a striking picture. It pictures for us first the sinfulness of even the most devout believer. As the passage begins, we see Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. 
In the Old Testament, the high priest was the most holy of people. He is the one who offered the sacrifices. He represented the people before God. On the Day of Atonement, once per year, he is the one who went into the most holy place, into the holy of holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. No other person could enter except the high priest. And then only once per year on the Day of Atonement, God also gave specific instructions to the high priest as to how he was to dress with sacred garments to give him dignity and honor. Exodus 28 verse 2 tells us. And you can read 43 verses of instructions for the high priest on how he was to present himself there in Exodus 28. In that chapter, the Lord Described the ephod worn by the high priest as a flowing robe of blue, gold, purple, and scarlet yarn, the work of a skilled craftsman. It was truly a beautiful robe. Exodus 28 also describes the breastplate having braided chains of gold, a place for the urim and for the thummim, a turban with a plate of pure gold on which was engraved these words, Holy to the Lord. Specific instructions were even given concerning the priest's undergarments. They were to extend from the waist to the thigh. The last verse of the 28th chapter of Exodus declares, This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and for his descendants after him. Yet here in this vision, in Zechariah 3, how is Joshua, the high priest, a descendant of Aaron, dressed? Where is that beautiful ephod? Where is the breastplate and the golden strands? Where is that beautifully crafted turban? Zechariah 3, verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. This verse graphically teaches the sinfulness of even the most devout believer. Take Billy Graham, take R.C. Sproul, William Hendrickson, or Louis Burkhoff or any other Christian leader, contemporary or historic like Luther, or John Calvin, or John Knox, or biblical examples like Abraham and Moses and David, the apostles as well as the prophets. All of them were sinners, and all of them were unrighteous in and of themselves. Everyone who has ever lived, with the exception of Jesus Christ, is clothed in filthy rags until, until, There is true saving faith in Christ alone. Only then are we clothed in the rich garments of the righteousness of Christ. Consider Isaiah 64, verse 6, written by an esteemed holy prophet of God's choosing. He writes, All of us have become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. 
We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, as we take that element of bread, and as we drink from the cup, you and I are reminded that we, along with all the other people who have gone before us, have nothing to bring to the Lord except the filthy rags of our unrighteousness and our sinfulness. The second truth that is pictured so graphically for us in this unique vision is Satan's work as an accuser of God's people. In verse 1 we read, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The name Satan is from the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for accuser, and we find him living up to his name as he boldly stands at Joshua's right side to accuse him before God. Satan specializes in the accusation of God's people. He does so today just as he did with Joshua the high priest, with Job, and with all the other Old Testament saints. Satan still accuses not from heaven as he did before the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven, but he still accuses God's people. He still accuses you and accuses me effectively and persistently. The accusations of the devil are altogether different from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He brings the light of the law into our heart and shows us the depth of our depravity. But he does so in order that we repent of our sin and turn in saving faith to Christ and have that blessedness that we sang about, knowing that our transgressions are covered and that we are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. But Satan accuses us in order to shake our faith, to cause doubt in our mind concerning our salvation. It is an effort on his part to dismantle and deconstruct our faith in Christ. In this vision, we also clearly see the substitutionary work of Christ in redeeming us as his righteous garments are put on Joshua, the high priest, In verse 2, the Lord rebuked Satan. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In this rebuke to Satan, we see the gracious character of our God and his great compassion. The Lord realizes that just as a stick is snatched from a fire, and continues to smolder and to smoke. So we, who are snatched from the grip of sin, continue to smolder with sin as we struggle against the evil desires that unfortunately still live within us in our sinful nature and wage war against the Spirit of God within us as well. We struggle against the temptations of the devil and the allurements of the world. Our old sinful nature 
is like that burning stick. We are snatched from the fire of hell, but our old sinful nature still burns and lives in conflict with the Holy Spirit. Not only does the Lord rebuke Satan, but in verse 4, the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnation portrayal of Christ, says, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And in verse 5, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The rich garments, the clean clothes, the new turban, all show that Joshua the high priest is now no longer in his filthy rags, but is clothed in the righteousness of the pre-incarnate Christ. In a Bible study on Genesis years ago, we used a study guide written by Reverend Mark Vanderhart called Joseph and Judah, and he pointed out in that study guide on several occasions the significance of clothing within Scripture. In Joseph's coat of many colors, we see a dramatic change as he is sold to the slave traders who brought him to Egypt. We see a prisoner's robe on him, and then finally the robe of royalty as he is raised up as a right-hand man to Pharaoh. Also Tamar wore clothes that were significant. She wore widow's clothing until she heard that her father-in-law Judah was coming to Timnah, and then she changed into the clothing of a prostitute and covered her face with a veil in order to seduce Judah. And likewise, Jacob, in that familiar scene, used Esau's clothing to uh, deceive Isaac as he tricked his father into giving him the blessing that belonged to his brother. In Scripture, a variety of clothing is used to describe, usually with great significance, the character of someone or the essence of what something is. As we come to take the Lord's Supper, regardless of whether we are dressed casually or in a suit or a special Sunday dress or somewhere in between, spiritually there are only two ways to be clothed. We come either in the filthy garments of our own unrighteousness and sinfulness apart from saving faith in Christ, or we come with humble repentance and true saving faith and are indeed clothed in the righteousness of our Savior and Lord. The scene that is pictured before us in Zechariah 3 portrays the essence of the entire gospel that we who are unworthy, clothed in filthy rags, are dressed in the righteousness of Christ and presented to the Father without spot, without blame, when we truly have saving faith in Christ alone for our salvation. 
The scene that is portrayed in Zechariah 3 is a remarkable scene. It points us directly to Christ. In the Old Testament, Christ at times is described as the angel of the Lord. And the definite article, the, is what separates the angel of the Lord from the other angels. And when people saw the angel of the Lord, they were terrified and many of them feared for their very lives because they realized that they had seen God himself in pre-incarnate form. And now it is the angel of the Lord who says to Joshua in verse 4, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It is by that redeeming work, that gracious redeeming work of Christ, that we are clothed in clean, righteous robes, rather than in the filthiness of our sin. The clothing of Joshua the high priest And our clothing with the righteousness of Christ is only possible because of the substitutionary atonement, the redeeming work of Christ at Calvary. But to clothe us in his righteousness required the supreme sacrifice on the part of Jesus. It required a life of ridicule, persecution, and humiliation The humiliation, the persecution and trials of Jesus are evident throughout his life. But the humiliation of Jesus especially culminated at the time of his crucifixion. By faith in him alone, we are clothed in his righteousness. But our clothing in his righteousness is a result of him being stripped naked and crucified for our salvation. Do you remember the reason the Roman soldiers cast lots? It was for the seamless undergarment of Jesus Christ. John 19, verse 23 and 24 describe how when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the seamless undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's cast lots to decide who will get it. This happened, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. John nineteen twenty four records the ESV which is the superior translation over the NIV which I quoted with the seamless undergarment the the ESV uses the word tunic which is a proper translation of the original language but you might notice that the footnote for tunic says a long garment worn under the cloak next to the skin In other words, it was like your underwear and like mine. One commentator notes, They, the soldiers, did what was shameful. Yet by means of that shameful deed, God's eternal plan was fulfilled. Hence, we pause in abhorrence and adoration 
Jesus bore for us the curse of nakedness in order to deliver us from it, from sin. That written by William Hendrickson in his New Testament commentary on John. Although we commonly see the crucifixion portrayed with Jesus wearing that loincloth, Scripture makes it clear that even his undergarment was taken from him as for our sake. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is also the branch described in verse 8 and verse 9 who alone can clothe us in his righteous garments. In verse 8, the Lord says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Verse 9 describes a stone with seven eyes, meaning that it has seven different characteristics or seven different facets. Although there are different ideas by commentators on what the stone is and what it represents, the conclusion of that verse clearly points to Jesus Christ. It says, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The single day was the day that Jesus was led out to Mount Calvary. There he suffered and died on the cross for all who by his grace and spirit's power have saving faith in him alone. There, as the ultimate and only perfect high priest, he offered the ultimate and only perfect sacrifice for sinners. He offered himself. All the Old Testament priests, such as Joshua the high priest, had to continually offer their sacrifices both for their sins and the sins of the people. But when Christ, our great high priest, sacrificed himself, it was a sacrifice once for all. He removed sin for all time. He never needs to repeat of his priestly action. In his words, it is finished. Symbolically, that is shown to us by Jesus sitting down at the right hand of his Father in heaven. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was no chair. There were other furnishings, but there was no chair because it symbolized that the work of the Old Testament high priest was never done. By contrast, Hebrews chapter 10 emphasizes that after Jesus sacrificed himself and rose again, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, showing that his work of redemption is completely done. It portrays and proves the prophecy of Zechariah 3.9 that he would remove the iniquity of this land, the sin of this land, in a single day. Hebrews 10 serves as an inspired commentary on the effectiveness of the finished work of Christ. In verses 11 and 12, we read, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices that can never take away sin. But when this priest 
had offered for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Your redemption and my redemption is complete. It is finished by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. A number of applications sprang from this remarkable scene. First, if we have saving faith in Christ alone this morning, it is by God's grace and by his electing love that we have that saving faith. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, none of us take it by some merit of our own. It is only by God's grace and electing love that we are saved from our sin. Did you pick that up in verse 2 where the Lord says to Satan that it is the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem? Our salvation is all of his grace, of his choosing, of his initiation. In the familiar words of Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Because God has chosen to redeem us, we are snatched from the fire. As we have seen, the stick snatched from the fire can refer to our sinful nature, but it also refers to how we are snatched from the fire of hell. It properly shows us the electing love and redeeming grace of our God and snatching us from the fire of hell. The evangelist John Wesley was almost burned to death when he was eight years old. A fire had broken out in the house where he lived. Everyone had been evacuated except for John. But a neighbor standing on another neighbor's shoulders was able to reach up to the second story where John was in this blazing house and pull him to safety. And as you might imagine, that incident stuck in Wesley's mind. And on one occasion, he he happened to tell an artist about that fire and how he was rescued. And the artist portrayed it on canvas and gave the canvas to Wesley. And Wesley put it in a wooden frame. And on the bottom of the frame, he had the words engraved from Zechariah 3.2 in the old King James Version which reads, Is not this a brand plucked from the burning? As we take the Lord's Supper, we are forcefully reminded that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, by his pierced sacrifice body, we too are brands plucked from the burning by our gracious and merciful, loving Lord. We also see in this passage that if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we must live godly lives. In verses 6 and 7, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Notice that this is not said before Joshua is just justified. 
But afterward, often the gospel is twisted to make it seem like we have to reach some level of perfection and goodness. And then if we live a good enough life, God will look down in mercy and see how good we have been. And then he will redeem us. But it is impossible for us to cleanse ourselves, to reach some level of goodness acceptable to the Lord apart from Christ. As the Lord said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah thirteen twenty three, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Biblically, the cleansing is done first. The cleansing is done by God's grace through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Romans 5 verse 6 assures us, For just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And Romans 5 verse 8 adds, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were still in our filthy rags. Christ died for us. And then, out of gratitude, we are to live lives that are transformed by faith. Romans 1 verse 5 describes the obedience that comes from faith. And whenever we take the Lord's Supper together, we are reminded that we need that obedience that comes from faith. We repent of our sins. We reaffirm our faith in Christ alone for salvation, but also we examine our conscience to to see whether we truly desire to leave this building living in obedience to the Word of God, to the best of our ability, God enabling us and sanctifying us. That is the obedience that comes from faith, that work of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. And then a third application. It is only the redeemed who have true security and peace realized through faith in Christ alone. The peace and security of believers is represented in verse 10 by the imagery of the fig tree and the vine. The fig tree and the vine were frequently used in the Old Testament to portray the security and the blessedness of the Israelites. Unbelievers try to give the impression that they have security and peace, and many of them certainly desire it. Yet, as Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 puts it, the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But we are reminded that our true peace and security comes from saving faith in Christ alone. As Romans 5.1 puts it, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And when we have that peace with God through saving faith in Christ, then we also have peace with one another. We recognize that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are drawn closer to one another. And we also have peace with our circumstances, even when they are hard. We have a peace that Philippians 4 verse 7 assures us, surpasses, transcends all understanding. 
Or in the words of Isaiah 26, verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. My mother, who was a widow for many years, had no worldly wealth, but she was very well-dressed. She bought all her clothes at consignment shops and used clothing stores. And did she ever get good buys? If you saw my mother, you would say, that looks like a wealthy, sophisticated woman from the way she is dressed. But she had nothing. When she retired, she came and lived with my wife, Karen, and I in Philadelphia because she had no means to support herself and live on her own. On the other hand, in our church in Medford, Oregon, we had a man in the church who looked like he was a street person, and he acted like a street person because you would see him on the streets of Medford with a garbage bag, picking up cans and uh, putting them in the garbage bag and bringing them to the redemption center, getting a nickel piece per can. You could have named him the safety pin man because his old flannel shirts were all worn out and instead of having new buttons on them, he had safety pins, so you would see a line of safety pins. And then when his glasses broke, instead of getting new screws in the, the earpieces, He had two safety pins here as well. Anyone who would guess their monetary value would certainly guess that my mother was wealthy and the safety pin man, as he could be called, was poor. But when he died, since he had no family, he left everything to the small church there in Medford, Oregon, And the congregation was shocked when they went into his little mobile home. They all wondered how he could afford that trailer on the edge of town. And they went in and they saw the worn out dresser and they opened it to to see what was there. And there were certificates of savings, checking accounts, mutual funds, gold, silver. The man was so wealthy that the church, which was meeting in a Grange Hall, and was small and struggling, was able to buy an existing church building. Anyone who would guess their true monetary value, my mother and the safety pin man, who was a very dear friend of ours, would have been completely fooled. But God is never fooled by how we are dressed. In his view, there are only two ways to be dressed. We are either dressed in the filthy rags of our sin and are under the just and proper eternal judgment of Almighty God or by God's grace, through saving faith in Christ alone. We are dressed in His righteousness, spotless and without blame. And spiritually speaking, the way we are dressed makes all the difference in this life and all the difference in the life to come. As we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the juice, may you and I find that by God's grace, the filthy rags of our sin-stained wardrobe are truly replaced with the righteousness of Christ alone. May we be assured that they are replaced with the purest, richest, most wonderful of all garments, the righteousness of Him who allowed His body 
to be pierced and broken for us and his blood to be shed for the complete forgiveness of all those who have true saving faith in him alone. Amen. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for the rich robes of your Son's righteousness freely given to all who repent of their sins and come to you in true saving faith. As we remember through the sacrament, the greatness of that sacrifice, we ask now for your blessing and that our lives would always be lives of gratitude for what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.